So I, I mean, at this point, I'm not seeing a ton of momentum behind it. I mean, it's obviously still very early. And I think if perhaps this proposal were to, you know, be paired with something like good cause eviction or something that the, you know, housing justice for all folks are really pushing for, I could see a conversation happening. But I, I don't know, I think it still seems like a pretty uphill battle. Um, I don't think that the legislature wants to necessarily be known as legislature that undoes part of the 2019 rent law. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. Susanna, happy new year. You too, Bella. And happy Hanukkah, Christmas and Kwanzaa if you celebrate any of those holidays. So where were you for New Year's Eve? I was actually in Sydney, Australia. It's where I'm from. So we rang in 2023 a little earlier than the US. I watched Sydney's fireworks along the harbor. It was unreal and so beautiful. And then I spent New Year's Day at the beach. (laughs) So jealous. What about you? What did you do? It was actually my mom's birthday is on New Year's Eve, and she's tried to have a party the last three years, her 50th birthday, but COVID. And then last year, we all got COVID, so she had to cancel. So this is the third year. She finally had it. It was great. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite stories last week was actually about the brokers and developers in South Florida who partied very, very hard and with a lot of glamour on New Year's Eve. It was fun and kind of ridiculous. It was about all these, you know, some of Miami's biggest players and where they were on New Year's Eve. Gil Deezer, for example, who runs Deezer Development, was in St. Bart's on a mega yacht with Drake and Mike Tyson. Oh my gosh, the glamour. (laughs) That story was wild. Yeah, developer Eduardo de Fortuna had a party in Punta del Este, Uruguay. He said he danced and partied with his family and got home just before 9 a.m., which that's that's a record. I don't think I've ever stayed out that late. I know. And he said he, he, there was something in the story where he said like him and his sons. And I was like, this is amazing. Wow. A family affair. Yeah, oh, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, and there, there was also Moshimana who was in Dubai and was invited by supermodel Naomi Campbell to a party. Yeah. that It was just really wild. Every paragraph, it was like, oh, you know, they were like out beating each other, I guess. Yeah. So it's officially 2023. And that means a brand new term for New York Governor Kathy Hochul and a handful of new state lawmakers and a whole slate of new issues on the table that are set to impact the real estate industry. Yes. So everyone, developers, investors, landlords and advocates, they're all watching to see what Hochul will pass through this year. I chatted with Catherine Brunzel. She's a reporter who closely covers what's going on in Albany and City Hall to walk us through the top real estate items at the forefront of the governor's mind. But before we get to that, we have a couple weeks worth of news to cover. And I feel like it's actually been quite a busy couple of weeks despite the holidays. Yeah, definitely for me. I did not take off really this holiday season and I've been working, you know, a good bit. We have a bunch of yearly roundups you should definitely check out. Yeah, so we did them across all of our markets. In LA, we had a story about the juiciest lawsuits in 2021, and it was a really entertaining read. It had everything from debacles around embezzled money from Kuwait, the historic and former standard Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard, and a fight over the billboard. And of course, the one, which is this mega spec development that sold for $126 million last year through a bankruptcy. But that still wasn't enough to cover the debt owed on the property. So there are a ton of lawsuits around that. In New York, I found it interesting. The top new office lease signed in 2022 was not an investment bank 
or a law firm. It was the New York City School Construction Authority. The agency took 350,000 square feet at Savannah's One Court Square. That's Queens's tallest office building. Yeah, I agree. That's not the firm or agency that I would have picked to take the top spot. But it is a good example of, you know, how the slowdown in hiring, how tech firms are shrinking space and how a lot of companies are putting office decisions on hold. But as a caveat, and this is on to more recent news, we did see a massive renewal deal come out of New York this week. News Corporation and Fox, they extended their 1.1 million square foot lease at 1211 Avenue of the Americas through 2042. So that's one company that has decided to stay as is, no expansion, but also no shrinkage. Right. At first reading, it's like, okay, the company is doing nothing, right? It's choosing to stay in the same spot. But that alone is a big decision right now, considering how many firms are struggling with getting people back into the office and making layoffs. So to say, hey, we want to be here for 20 more years, it says something. Absolutely. And I also wanted to talk about a story you recently wrote about distress in the multifamily sector, but specifically with rent-stabilized buildings. What's going on there? It's sort of a compendium of factors. So rent-stabilized owners were hit by the 2019 rent law, which restricted their means of raising revenue. You know, there's very few avenues to hike rents on rent-stabilized units. At the same time, interest rates have gone up. So a lot of the loans that are coming due, those owners don't have enough revenue to sort of take care of them. So we're starting to see distress crop up there. Also, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program also known as ERAP, was supposed to pay back arrears for all of the tenants who had missed rent payments during COVID. It's almost three years since the pandemic started, like three full years, we're in the third year. But that program has been live since June 2021, and there are over 100,000 applications that have yet to be paid. So those owners are struggling because of that as well. Yeah, just in general, I think multifamily is one sector to really watch for distress. Multifamily was you know, such a popular investment class with extremely low cap rates for so long and very, very, very high pricing. And I'm doing some reporting on this at the moment, but cap rates are starting to rise and investment pricing is rising along with interest rates, obviously. So selling off those properties for a profit is going to be hard for some investors. Yeah, there was one pretty big investment and real estate bet that I saw last week involving Blackstone. Do you want to touch on that? Right. So the University of California's investment arm has agreed to put $4 billion into Blackstone's real estate investment trusts, which invests in all commercial asset classes, including multifamily. It was this huge vote of confidence in BREIT, which has worried investors over the last month or two. Yeah, I've been seeing that. So can you go into a little bit more detail about what investors are worried about? Well, so last month, the REIT started restricting investor withdrawals after a number of investors in Asia started requesting to pull out money of the fund amid concerns about the property market in China. Stephen Schwartzman, Blackstone's chairman, dismissed fears at an industry conference, saying it was a bit baffling. So the University of California investment then is a big sort of reassuring deal. Definitely. And this is kind of interesting, but the deal came about because of a TV interview President Jonathan Gray did in December. Apparently, UC's chief investment officer contacted Blackstone and said, you know, is there anything we can do to help? Gray himself called the deal a massive affirmation. Interesting. So I cover Blackstone's quarterly earnings, and I think last quarter they reported 
next to zero earnings. It was like 0.01 cents or something like that, one of the metrics. So I'm curious to see once we hit earnings season, how they're doing. Yeah, definitely. Okay, on to the residential side of the business. Compass is, once again, in the news, the brokerage laying off more employees. But again, it's telling people not to worry. It'll be the last round of cutbacks. It needs to become cash flow positive by mid-2023. Did Compass say how many employees they're laying off? No, but the move will cost the firm between 10 and $12 million. When Compass laid off 450 employees last June, it said that move would cost between 15 and $16 million. So gives us a little bit of a frame of reference. Yeah, definitely. So there's been a ton of news over the past couple of weeks, and we obviously can't cover it all in this little 10-minute segment. But I think we have to end talking about Twitter. The company now led by Elon Musk has stopped paying rent on its headquarters in San Francisco and has shed two thirds of its HQ offices. Wow. It's also facing a lawsuit claiming non-payment of rent and one of its other offices in San Francisco. So they're in a lot of trouble in the real estate world. Oh my gosh. Weren't employees also sleeping in the offices? Yeah. A couple of reports at the beginning of December said that apparently some of the offices at Twitter's headquarters had been converted into bedrooms and employees, including Elon Musk, were sleeping there. Apparently, Musk was looking for ways to cut costs. So when people come to work from out of town, they didn't need a hotel. They could sleep at Twitter. That... That sounds like a nightmare. It also reminds me of that. Did you watch that show Severance with um, yeah. Adam Scott? Yeah. It seems closely aligned with that, where it's like the line between work and home is just like eradicated. Right, exactly. It's like the opposite of remote work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I guess we'll see what happens to the rest of their offices across the U.S. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do a deeper dive into what's happening with Twitter and some of the company's landlords. So definitely stay tuned for that. Yeah. So let's jump into your interview with Catherine. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Dotted, the asset optimization platform that aligns your teams and makes your real-time data work for you. Automate reports, export stacking plans, run simplified leasing calls, and go beyond the lease with capital projects and dynamic projections all in one place. Get a demo today at Dotted.com. So we are recording this just a few days into the new year. It's the 4th of January. And that also marks the start of the legislative session in Albany. Right, Katie? Yes. So lawmakers return to Albany today to just kick off the 2023 legislative session. Um, So we have the next six months to look forward to. Okay, great. So I wanted to ask from a high level perspective, how do state lawmakers prioritize their time heading into the session? So the first few months, I guess, looking at, are they more focused on the budget or on specific bills or on the governor's ideas? What are their key sort of agenda items they're tackling? Yeah, I mean, I think for the first few months of the session, the state budget definitely takes up a lot of oxygen. Um, The governor actually next week is going to give her state of the state address, which basically lays out what her policy agenda is for the year. And it basically points us in the direction of what we can expect from her executive budget proposal. So I would say, yeah, like in the beginning of the session, lawmakers are are very focused on the budget. I think this year, too, the nomination of Judge Hector LaSalle to lead the state court system and the state court of appeals is something that lawmakers are very focused on. Um, There's supposed to be a confirmation hearing in the Senate next couple of weeks. So that's definitely something that's among the top priorities for lawmakers right now. Oh, interesting. So what's notable about him? 
he's like a very controversial pick for for Hochul and that she is facing um, opposition from some Senate Democrats. So it might be a, a tough uh, road ahead for that appointment. Okay, so this will be Governor Hochul's first elected term in office, and it's the first time New York has elected a woman as governor. So looking at real estate, what problems or initiatives seem to be at the forefront of her mind? So she's already said that uh, affordable housing is going to be a big part of her agenda this year. And I think as, as part of that, we're going to potentially see a proposal to lift the city's residential floor area ratio cap, which limits the size of, of residential projects in the city. So by lifting that, potentially the city could you know, build bigger housing projects. Also, as part of that, there could be a proposal to legalize accessory dwelling units. There could also be a proposal to make it easier for offices to be converted into residential housing. So I think that like among the affordable housing priorities, those are probably the, the top proposals. I know that the governor has said that she supports the replacement of 421A and possibly the replacement of another property tax break, J51. There's some debate over whether or not that's going to happen this year. And then I think sort of outside of, of those proposals, there's also governors still very much pushing for her redevelopment and expansion of, of Penn Station and the massive commercial development that's planned as part of that. So a lot of affordable housing. Let's before we turn to that, let's look at them one by one, looking at Penn Station first. So what are some of the sticking points around that development? Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental issue with the redevelopment project is that, number one, there's sort of this argument that Madison Square Garden should be relocated to allow for a a true sort of overhaul of the station. That is not part of the governor's plan that's been sort of a point of contention for years, even predating uh, the governor's proposal. But it's still very much part of the conversation right now. Um, but I think, you know, when it, when it comes to the governor's proposal itself, opponents have argued that the commercial development plan for around the station, which is you know, 10 new commercial towers. There is a housing component to it, but it's still primarily office. Opponents say that that potentially not the best way to finance the redevelopment and expansion of the station. They've questioned sort of the wisdom of moving forward with a primarily office project when the office market is having sort of an existential crisis. So, you know, I think that we're going to see a lot more of that in the year ahead. I mean, there's a ton of other you know, approvals that are needed for the project. Um, I think it's possible that we could see some amendments to the governor's plan, potentially adding more housing to the plan, but nothing's been announced at, at this point. Okay. And do you think it's likely that all of those loose ends will be tied up by the end of this year? Or does that seem like a multi-year ordeal? Oh, it's definitely a multi-year ordeal, I think. We might get a new direction for the, the project this year or you know changes, but I, I think it's going to it's going to take time. So going back to 421A, we've talked about that a bunch over the past year. That expired in June. In its absence, developers claim that they can't finance new multifamily projects. And we have seen filings really drop off in the second half of 2022. So for the city, that means less housing being built overall, less affordable housing, which is very bad during a deepening housing crisis and a homelessness crisis. Hochul had proposed a replacement for 85W. That didn't make it through the last budget. So do we have any idea of how the governor might tweak that proposal so that it could satisfy both her real estate donors and the tenant groups who are just seem to be outright fighting a replacement at all? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've really seen anything specific in terms of a different plan than 485W. You know, the governor has come out and said that she recognizes that an incentive akin to 421A is important to affordable housing, but she hasn't really put anything else forward. And I I don't know that we're going to see a new plan from her this year. Um, You know, that could change, you know, she gives her state of the state next week. So, you know, well, stay tuned. Yeah. Potentially next week, we'll have a different answer for you. But from what I've been hearing from industry folks, there's not like a ton of optimism that she's going to bust out with a new plan that will satisfy everyone <laughs> kind of in a holding pattern at this point. Okay. So hopping over to the accessory dwelling unit idea, what is an accessory dwelling unit and like how would that impact the availability of affordable housing? Sure. So an accessory dwelling unit, it can be a basement apartment. It can be an attached garage that's been converted into, you know, a separate apartment. It can actually be a detached unit. So think like a tiny house in a in a backyard. Especially in, in New York City, the primary issue with like there is is basement apartments and basement apartments. There needs to be, you know, specific light and air and exit and entrance requirements that need to be met. And so majority of the basement apartments in, in New York in the city are um, are not legal units. With the broader sort of accessory dwelling unit bill, the measure had sought to require areas zoned for single family use only to allow for the construction of these units. The the measure had sort of been amended a number of times to, you know, allow jurisdictions to sort of just opt in to allowing these units um, rather than just sort of outright requiring them to allow them. But even that measure didn't manage to pass last year. The, the governor is expected to revive a proposal surrounding accessory dwelling units, but it's not clear quite yet, you know, how, how she'll shape that proposal. Last year, she had faced the pressures of an election year to fight back against opponents who argued that the proposal robbed jurisdictions of local control over zoning. So we did sort of see her accede to that, but it'll be interesting to see how she approaches the issue this year. Going into the floor to area ratio cap, I was reading your coverage of this from like pretty much a year ago, talking about how the tight floor caps are why we have billionaires row, because developers who are building for people who have the money to buy these places or rent them out are able to adhere to the restrictions of the city by building these super skinny talls. But that doesn't really help with affordable housing. Can you talk about the idea behind lifting that cap and how that could promote more housing? If the state were to remove the FAR cap, basically from there, the city would get to decide where in the city residential projects uh, beyond an FAR of 12, you know, could be built. And, you know, the idea is that this could potentially lead to more housing units for, you know, on an individual project. And, you know, I think as part of that conversation and, and, you know, determining where it makes the most sense to allow more density, um, you know, the city could also explore potentially attaching an affordable housing requirement to, you know, reaching that higher FAR. But those are all sort of details that will need to be worked out once the the state takes action. So let's turn to Hochul's legislature for a second. It seemed that last year she found it difficult to push forward development favoring measures such as 421A, given the far left component of the legislature. Has that changed at all after this election? You know, we did see a number of more moderate Democrats get pushed out by more progressive Democrats in the Senate this year. So, I mean, I I think... 
that could hurt the chances of, of certain, you know, real estate related policies, because it's usually the the more moderate Democrats that you could rely on sort of signing off on those policies. But I, I don't know that the, the changes in the legislature were dramatic enough to be much different than last year. Even with those moderate candidates in office, like you didn't see 421A move forward, you didn't see anyone really sort of step up and say, you know, they were behind that policy. So I, I don't know that we're going to see a major difference in that respect. Digging in a bit further to the Democratic Socialist faction, I know Housing Justice for All has unveiled its agenda for 2023. I guess that happened a couple months ago. Last year, it seemed like they were really focused on good cause. Is that still the priority this year? Yeah, I think that's still very much a top priority for the DSA and for some lawmakers, for sure. I know as part of their agenda, they also put forward the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which is a proposal that they're they're seeking to revive this year, which gives tenants the, the first opportunity to buy a building um, if their landlord decides to sell the building. There's also, I think, just a push this year too to prioritize, you know, social housing policies. So there's potentially a proposal that would create a social housing development authority to promote um, publicly backed housing. And I think too, there's also, um, they are pushing for a proposal to make amendments to how the city's rent guidelines board operates. Those are all things that we're, we're watching for sure. That's interesting. Do we know any details about the rent guidelines board amendment? No, I don't think there was. Unfortunately for some of these, there's not specific legislation tied to it just yet, or at least not publicly. I feel like every year I've covered the rent guidelines board, it gets hotter and hotter. The Yeah. So yeah, it does seem like something has to give at some point. Okay. So then on the landlord side, CHIP and other groups, but notably CHIP has been pushing for changes to the rent law of 2019. They're arguing that increased regulation has led to the deterioration and disappearance of rent-stabilized units. Basically, landlords can't raise rents enough to cover repairs, and some are taking units off the market as a result. I know CHIP was gunning for a rollback of the law that would let landlords reset rents once a tenant moved out. So does that seem like it has legs this year? So I think at this point, that measure still doesn't have, I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's a specific bill language just yet for that measure. And I, I'm not sure that there's a specific lawmaker behind it at, at this point, at least it hasn't been sort of publicly released. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think in some ways it's going to be tricky to convince lawmakers to want to sign on to a measure that would increase rents for their constituents. You know, I think it's kind of a tough sell. Right. So I, I mean, at this point, I'm not seeing a ton of momentum behind it. I mean, it's obviously still very early. And I think if perhaps this proposal were to, you know, be paired with something like good cause eviction or something that the, you know, housing justice for all folks are really pushing for, I could see a conversation happening. But I I don't know, I think it still seems like a pretty uphill battle. Um, I don't think that the legislature wants to necessarily be known as legislature that undoes part of the 2019 rent law. Um, So I think I think that's going to be that's going to be tough. Great overview. Is there anything else you're looking at as we're heading into 2023? I think just broadly speaking, the mayor and the governor both came out with these really ambitious housing creation goals for the next decade. And I think as a part of that, I'm definitely going to be watching to see sort of what policies are put in place to potentially make those numbers a reality. I think there's sort of a big question mark as to you know how to reach those numbers. There's sort of broad strokes initiatives that both the governor and the mayor have announced, but none of them like 
taken together could could accomplish those numbers. So that's something I'm watching. And I think just in general, there's been a lot more focus on the issue of, of housing. And I, I'm interested to see sort of the direction that those those conversations take, you know, how people talk about affordable housing and whether we're going to see more debates over rezonings in the year ahead. You know, if Eric Adams does pursue neighborhood-wide rezonings this year. So those are some of the things I'm, I'll definitely be watching. Deconstruct airs every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. So follow us now on Apple, Spotify, Audible, and more for new episodes. Next week, we're talking about how real estate firms are vying for the chance to build a casino in New York. Tune in then.